welcome to S3, the science, sex and sorcery podcast, where we bring you news, reviews, recommendations and deeper discussion from the worlds of science fiction, romance and fantasy. I'm Terence McManus, an indie SFF writer. And I'm Belinda Misson, a romance writer published by HarperCollins UK. Now this podcast exists because Belinda and I realised if we were going to spend hours talking over the internet about everything we've read lately, instead of doing our own writing, we might as well put that discussion to use. Coming from varying writing backgrounds, one from podcasting and self-publishing and the other moving from self-publishing into traditional, allows us to bring unique perspectives and experience to each book we choose. We'll be reviewing a new book each podcast and giving you our insights to the stories and news items from across the publishing world. And speaking of news items, the SFF world sounds as if it's been just as busy as the romance world lately. Yes, there's been a lot of SFF news going around lately. Well, to give you a glimpse behind the curtain here, Belinda and I are recording two podcasts at once this time, considering we got a little bit behind on our schedule this year. Thank you. Thank you, 2020. Since we talked last, one of the biggest news items in the SFF world was the passing of Chadwick Boseman, which was a bit of a shock and horribly sad. For anyone who's a bit like me and has a nasty habit of conflating an actor's name with the roles that they've played and hasn't, for some reason, heard about this happening by now, Chadwick Boseman played T'Challa, the Black Panther, across the MCU movies. There's been a lot that's been said about the incredible strength his performances gave to the Black community in America and around the world, and honestly, it's been said by people more equipped to say it properly. But from our perspective on this podcast, we just want to note that it is a real blow to see such a talent in the SFF sphere be lost to us. He was incredible. The character was incredible, and cancer absolutely and royally sucks. It really does. I can't tell you how much I loved Black Panther. It was just, it was a beautifully powerful movie. And some of the people I've spoken to said that it was just, it was so nice to see them represented on screen, not as angry people, but as powerful people. And I think I first saw it on a plane. So it was probably a little bit edited, but it still managed to keep me in the seat well after we'd landed in Melbourne. I think they were sweeping me out of the aisles because I just wanted to keep watching it. But more remarkable, I think or just as remarkable, are the things that I'm learning about this wonderful human being only after he's died. It it kind of, it feels like that's kind of always the way, isn't it? Sometimes people do things quietly, which he always does, and or did, and he seems to have been one of those who did a lot of good things because they were good, not to collect likes or followers on social media. He was always behind the scenes, and he did all of these things while he was quite ill himself, which tells you the measure of the man. But as you said... There are people who can far better articulate it than either of us can. So I'm just going to roll into a little bit of publishing news on a completely the opposite end of the spectrum. It's that time of year again when the Christmas romance covers are having their big reveals on social media. So it's all Christmas trees and mistletoe and mulled wine and hot chocolate. And the last week has seen cover reveals from the likes of Samantha Tong, Katie Ginger and Susan Mallory. So it's all a little bit exciting when that starts happening in the romance community, we'll rush off and pre-order our Christmas reading. And I was part of that last year. And it's just, it's such such a buzz in the lead up to the festive season to be a part of that. It's, it's probably not something you can articulate very well, but it's it's all exciting. Sort of a bit of that Christmas spirit building early, hey? Yeah, it is. It gets in really early, but um, 
they sell. God, Christmas books sell. So there must be something to them. Well, we can all do with a bit of, you know, Christmas cheer and joy at this time of the year, that's for sure. And, and especially of, this year. Especially this year. And speaking of buzz and joy and long-awaited things like well, all <laughs> around once per year, let's finally get into our discussion, our very long-awaited discussion of Andrzej Sapkowski's collection of short stories, which famously introduce Geralt of Rivia and his world of magic and monsters. The book is called The Last Wish, and it is described in its synopsis as such. Geralt of Rivia, the Witcher, uses his legendary power and lifelong training to protect the innocent by hunting the vile fiends that ravage the land. But not all monsters are evil, and not everything fair is good. Now, we mentioned at the end of our last podcast, which, what was that, 2017? Yeah, probably. <laughs> it feels that long ago, but we certainly it, mentioned... It feels like it. But we certainly mentioned that I, at least, am a big fan of The Witcher video games, which are published by CD Projekt Red, even though I've only actually played the third instalment of that series. What I particularly loved about the game was that the morally grey resolutions to the quest lines. There's rarely a right choice in the game, but there's always a justifiable one. Do you choose to save a small group of war orphans from being eaten alive, accepting that this means an entire village of adults will be killed instead? Or would you toss a baby into an oven if that was the only way to save a duchy from the madness of its possessed ruler? Or do you side with a monster driven by hunger or humans driven by prejudice? It's a game that often makes you feel really uncomfortable with the long-term consequences of your actions. And in doing so, it subverts a lot of classic fantasy tropes, such as a clear moralistic divide between good and evil. So coming into now the... see, I like the sound of that. I like the sound of that. Sorry, I'm just going to cut in. Okay. I like the idea of morally grey, but let's keep going. <laughs> well, coming into the book with that background, I found it really interesting to see how those themes were reflected in the stories of this collection, you know, the original source material. But as we sort of alluded to there, you were coming into this completely blind, Belinda. What were your first thoughts on the world of The Witcher as it was portrayed in The Last Wish? Well... Let me just put it out there right now. I did not finish this book. I didn't love it. I didn't really even like it, but I did really want to read it before I jumped into the Netflix series. I think I gave it a fair crack, maybe 60 pages all up after you talked me into reading that extra little bit, but it just did not work. But I do wonder, most of the time while I was reading, I was wondering if given that The Witcher, the version that we're reading in the English speaking world is a translation. Am I, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, uh, Andrzej Sapkowski, the writer, is Polish. Um, and the collection was first published in 1993 as well, which undoubtedly has a bearing on the style. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure that style is quite the word for what I didn't gel with. Well, it might be. But I, I just, I didn't, the writing style didn't work for me. And I, I tend to wonder if that isn't a translation issue or it is a translation issue but given that so many means of other people love the book it's possibly that it just it wasn't for me i found that the style was very cut and dry everything that happened in the book happened without a whole lot of conflict and i've done a whole lot of reading in the last few months about story structure 
giving characters roadblocks to getting what they want, using inverted pyramids to deal with conflict and scenes and chapters. And I just feel like this lacked any kind of obstacles for the Witcher. He had something to do, get rid of the princess or rid the princess of the curse, which is okay. That's good. It was a fair goal. And I was really into the first few pages. There was some really good atmosphere built and everything was moving along quite nicely. But then he's meeting up with people and talking about his mission. And I never felt like anyone disagreed with him or came up against him or he had any kind of roadblocks. He just, he moved into the castle and he slept overnight and he did his thing. And suddenly the princess was free of her curse. So people, I I didn't like that people mostly just agreed with him and let him do what he wanted. And that's about the end of my rant. Yeah, look, it's really, really interesting to get that perspective on the story because although in general I really enjoyed the collection, I absolutely have to agree, Geralt doesn't seem to have a lot of obstacles in his way much of the time. And definitely not when looking at it from a personal character standpoint. And I wonder if that's a symptom of our different genre backgrounds. Because although Geralt absolutely suffers from all of the mid-90s power fantasy tropes. I kind of saw the the conflict in the book as divided into two parts. On the one hand, there's those mechanical obstacles that you're sort of talking about, the types that you can surmount by, you know, drinking the right potion or hacking something with your sword. Um, Those sort of, you know, speed bumps that you put in. And you're right, they were barely, he was just gliding right over top of those speed bumps. This ultra-confident protagonist that, everybody agreed with and who was regarded as the expert and who's already got all the expertise, you know, before the stories even start. So it doesn't sort of need to learn anything character wise in that regard. But to me, there also seemed to be another, another level there, sort of the thematic obstacles where the fantasy elements of the setting and the narrative, you know, act as reflections of the reader's assumptions and prejudice and use that to pose these sort of moralistic questions that the book wants to answer. Now, see, and you've got me on this point because I feel like I didn't quite read too deeply into it and I didn't register with any of these things as I was reading it. So I'm not sure if that makes me a bad reader or whether I just came to the book at the wrong time. You know, when you pick up a book and you don't love it, but then you pick it up six months later and it resonates with something that's happening in your life and it's suddenly the best book you've ever read, even though you remember throwing it across the room the first time you've read it. Yeah, I think that, I mean, honestly, it probably comes down to our differences in genres more, more, than, more than anything. I mean, romance and fantasy are definitely coded very differently to very different sorts of readers. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why I really love talking through these stories uh, with you on the podcast and getting those different perspectives, because I think the, you know, that character basis that you're looking at it, that lens that you're reading this through, that does seem like a, a very, a very romance novel kind of, kind of reading lens. Yeah, you're probably very right there. And I think it's a great reminder to us that everybody sees stories differently. And that can be particularly helpful as an author, because I know that I see my characters as one way. And when I write them, I know everything about them and I know everything about their worlds and their lives. But once these books are out in the open, they belong to readers. So if I haven't explained something properly, the readers are not going to see what I see and they'll just be like, Belinda, you're an idiot. What are you doing? Which is kind of how I came to this book, I think. 
you know, I'd like to delve into that a little bit deeper, I, I guess, that different perspective and the way that the reading of the, of the story can, can be really different between approaches and different lenses. I think it'd be great. Yeah, for sure. Let's home in on just one of the, one of the stories. As you mentioned earlier, I did push you a little bit to keep reading on for one particular story, which was also the story that the first episode of the Netflix adaptation was based off. I thought that it was a really great example of the way that the novel explores theme through a story. Uh, that story, of course, uh-huh. is Lesser Evil in the book, and I believe by the same name in the, in the series as well, episode one. And yeah, you're absolutely right from the outset. In this story, Geralt sort of just tumbles unchallenged from one scene of the story to the next. Like, we open up, he's rude to this powerful wizard, there's no consequences. He sleeps with the girl, and then he absolutely carves up everybody in the <laughs> without breaking a sweat, uh, you know. Yeah, he's just uh, like, this is, this is a Saturday morning, let's go, let's roll. Yes, and while it was really nice to, uh, to, see, to see my man Henry Cavill with his rippling biceps in those scenes, uh, not even he. Yeah, you can keep him. Sweat. And I think what it boils down to for me was that those elements were really just the sort of the set dressing for the real conflict, which in this story was exploring the morality of inaction. Because while all those mechanical okay, yep. story are turning around, Geralt's always struggling throughout to avoid being forced into a position where he has to bear the responsibility for either the death of the outcast princess or the death of the wizard. Like he and the reader. Is that just been... is that just him avoiding being an adult then? <laughs> I mean, like if, be... if I don't do it, I can just leave it to someone else, and someone else can be in charge of this, and I can just walk away, and it's fine. It's the uh, the fantasy equivalent of sticking your fingers in your ears and going na 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 na. I can't hear anything. <laughs> oh dear. Well, I mean, look, that's a that's a, certainly a valid way of interpreting it. But I found it really interesting how, like, you know, Geralt and, in turn, the reader are getting conflicting versions of the central story that has pit these two characters against each other, the wizard and the, and the princess. And it's impossible to know which one of them, you know, if either of them are telling the truth. So in choosing not to choose, Geralt tries to avoid making, you know, the wrong the morally wrong decision and murdering someone who didn't, you know, air quotes, deserve to be, to be killed. But then the story sort of explores how by putting himself in that, in the middle, you know, or trying to remove himself by choosing inaction, Geralt then finds himself bearing moral responsibility for the actions of both of those parties. Because if he'd made a choice, if he'd, put himself in there to make a choice, it wouldn't have come down to the choice that Geralt ultimately has to make in the marketplace, where it seems that a whole bunch of innocent people are going to be murdered in order to draw the wizard out of his tower. And maybe my reading of this story in particular, like you say, there are times that elements can really hit you and there are times that they can glide by. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the current state of the world's politics in the last couple of years has really helped that 
responsibility of inaction land home with me. And I found that exploration of, you know, where was the right choice in this situation? And, and was there a right choice that Geralt could have made in this situation that would have left both parties, you know, amicably resolving this conflict? I found that conflict to be, you know, really captivating myself. See, and, and I, I agree. I, I can see where you're going with that. And the theme, I suppose theme isn't something that's spelled out to the reader directly, but it was something that was only just sort of talked about in the last few sentences of the, of the story. And that was when I went, oh, okay, so that's what this is about. And I don't know, maybe I needed to do a deeper reading of it, put the coffee cup down for five minutes and actually pay attention. But I just, I wonder if that's enough to sort of spell it out in the last few sentences after you've gone through the point, look, you've gone through the whole story. It just seems like a whole lot of action to go through for us to basically be told. So here's the moral of the story in the last few sentences. Of course, I can't say because it wasn't me writing the book. And as you said, we really are looking at a different era of SFF. So the writing is completely at odds to what we think we might be reading today. As a teenager, I did read quite a bit of fantasy in those sort of mid to late 90s. But I can't help but wonder if, see, and you've already just, you've pointed out before how morally grey things are pointed out in the story. But I wonder if there could have been a better job of it displayed through the action, through challenging Geralt, through making him act and, and have that inner dialogue with himself about, about his choices. Because in the romance world, a lot of it is a lot of inner dialogue with the main character and he or she or they are making their choices and explaining them to the reader at the same time. Whereas I feel like we didn't get that. Or maybe that's a failure of the translation. Perhaps in its native language, it reads a lot better. And maybe we're getting a very literal translation of the story. It may have been a lot clearer in terms of that. I don't know. Language, especially the English language, is a really strange thing. Yeah, that's absolutely a fair point. And I mean, you're right. Geralt, Geralt's inner workings throughout all of these stories, he, he's really really inscrutable like he doesn't have a it doesn't seem to have a lot of self-reflection on what's happening and that's certainly not spelled yeah. out to the reader it is like you say impossible to really say how much of that's in the translation and perhaps in the original polish it's it's more suggestive of some of these things but either way it, it seems pretty clear that it's not spelled it's definitely not spelled out directly there's there's a much yeah bigger focus on sort of theme than there is on character and character yeah, yeah. internal motivations and you know if i'm being honest about my own genre the 90s man they were a weird and wild time <laughs> fantasy writing and science fiction novels uh, there were so many tropes that if they weren't born in that era they were definitely doubled down on and I think we can, <laughs> and they wouldn't fly today. No, I think we can generously call that era less refined <laughs> in the writing style. <laughs> and look, I wouldn't be surprised if those, if those elements that you feel are missing in the story was just the way that it was written at the time. Like we weren't particularly discerning as SFF readers in the 90s, perhaps pacing and character. We weren't as enlightened. 
<laughs> maybe. But, you know, pacing and character not as important to us as general overarching theme. And, you know, this was the era as well of, you know, Dungeons and Dragons taking off where you've got a lot of people sitting around a what story. Was that one? Wolfenstein? Oh, yeah, God, that's true. Like, all these things where you're, just, <laughs> where you're just, you're filling in the grey areas yourself. You're filling in the unseen yeah. parts with your own imagination sort of thing. And we sort of understood, I guess, a bit that that was, as readers, part of what we were experiencing. So maybe that has a, maybe that has an impact on that, you know, the focus on theme leaves room for you to put your own spin on it all as well. It just, you know... It was a Choose your own band. adventure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the 90s for fiction in general were just, they were lit. I mean, we look at the early 90s romance novels. You've got, you know, the Fabio covers and they're all painted and there's hair and in the wind and his chest is out. And, you know, bod- they call them bodice rippers, which we don't do anymore because we are more refined and mature and we're doing the romance thing a lot better now. The genre itself is still haunted by and derided over those covers. And as someone who didn't come into reading romance until sort of the late 90s, I missed a lot of that stuff. And I haven't read a lot of early 90s, 1980s even romance, like your Julie Coopers. And I just, I wonder if I should go back and read one of those classics and report back so we can make like meerkats and compare the pair. <laughs> Maybe we should have a, a historical segment of the podcast one time and just go back and read one of those, like you say, very Heron yes. and Fabio, you know, Viking pirate yes. or something, uh, romance novels and, and uh, do that for the podcast too. <laughs> Let's do it. I find that too a really interesting point about how times have changed the way we, the way we read and interpret that same sort of material. And that actually makes me wonder, do you think that reading the book has spoiled you on the adaptations, perhaps? Do you think that, or do you think maybe you might connect with The Witcher as a general thing more after that fresh lick of paint in, you know, either the games or the, or the Netflix series? Do you think that that might sort of paper over those core elements? Oh, now see. didn't hold up? No, it, it didn't. It, look, I'm glad you touched on this. Because when I put this down, after you'd convinced me and I thought I'll just do it and I'll get it done and everyone will be happy, I thought I'm going to go and watch the first episode because I've read the first little bit of the book, I can watch the first little part of the series and perhaps it will be better. But it wasn't. And I just, it's something I've thought about because sometimes it's just that the book doesn't connect with you. And there are enough people who love this book to signify that it really is just something that didn't gel with me. And that includes the TV series. I just, I wasn't invested in the characters or what they were doing. Although I did enjoy seeing some familiar faces in terms of the actors. It was a lot of, I was on the IMDB going, oh, I remember seeing them somewhere and I can't remember. Oh, yes, of course. But I'd be really keen to get our audience's opinion on The Witcher. I'm sure we'll be flooded with people who don't agree with me and think that my opinion is garbage and that's fine. Because I think I am in the minority of people who just didn't get it and that's fine. Well, I don't know. So you might be surprised. Read... You might be surprised oh. if you get. There's uh, well, you certainly know, some people against the, the Netflix series, I know at least, for uh, the way that... Oh, look, I was looking up, looking up the book on Amazon and I'm like, mm, it's rated four and a half stars and it's got thousands of reviews. 
So perhaps I am in the minority. So if you have watched it or read it, or if you have done both, what did you think of the split between the book and the telly series? I feel like books versus film adaptations could be an entire podcast series for us. Oh God, yes. Um, oh, could you imagine? We have to start with Jurassic Park. As for the next bookish podcast, though, next time we'll be looking at In Case You Missed It by Lindsay Kelk. She's one of my favourite authors, and I picked her up sort of when I got back into the romance stuff, and I just I connected immediately with her writing style and her voice. So I'm really looking forward to discussing this one with you. Uh, but before we do go, have you got any other reads planned? Yeah, look, I'm actually reading a, a young adult novel by a fellow Australian author at the moment. I've tried dipping my toes a little bit into the Ozrights community on Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. but I've committed down to, you know, one of those monthly Twitter challenges. I believe you're doing it too this month. And I did it this month too. I normally forget all about it. I, I managed to hook in and program all my tweets for the month. So I'm like, you, I'm in. <laughs> well, I've done exactly that. I've, I've started it and then I've completely forgotten about it for every update day this week, uh, this month. So, uh, oh, see, but, you need to get on TweetDeck. Ah, uh, yes, that's true. But at least I've, uh, I've got the book uh, that I've committed to read this month as part of that challenge. It's uh, Songlines by Carolyn Denman. And let me tell you, it's pretty great so far. I'm really looking forward to getting really stuck into it over the coming weeks when I've got some time awesome. to probably sit down. But I'm also really looking forward to getting stuck into In Case You Missed It as well. It sounds absolutely hilarious from what you've told me about it so far. I'm so looking forward to this discussion. I love when I get people to read books that I love and then they're just like, mm. and I'm waiting there going, mm, did you love that? <laughs> you just described me exactly when I handed you The Witcher. <laughs> <laughs> waiting, waiting, waiting. But if you have read In Case You Miss It, missed it, listen, missed it, if you have, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Drop us a line at s3pod at gmail.com to chat about books, your reactions to the show, my terrible opinions, or suggestions for upcoming books. And you can also subscribe to our podcast through Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and most other places you get your podcasts from. You can also check us out online at our almost functioning website, www.s3podcast.com and very slowly 2020 snails pace getting around to putting up transcripts direct links and our 2020 reading list which will be over by the time i actually get that list up <laughs> makes a good, it will. a good document of the year yes look at our last year's books catch up <laughs> look at how look at how productive we were during 2020 <laughs> well we were locked down with nothing else to do <laughs> and speaking of very productive things, you can find my other podcast where I talk about the writing process, free short stories, and put links to my books. That's all at terrytalksfiction.com. Or you can find my work at belindamisson.com or on Amazon if you are brave enough to search for my name. Stay tuned, everyone, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye. Why did I waste all that time on the book? It's just a shit on the TV. Yeah. Yeah, I found the changes they made in that interesting. Um, But, you know, that's a whole other discussion, I suppose. Um, Yeah, and I don't love Henry Cavill. He can fuck off with his Superman outfit, tell me. Sacrilege. Sacrilege. (laughs) Come after my man with his chiseled jaw. 
He had a bath scene and everything in that. It was wonderful. No, delicious. I can't. Not <laughs> the blonde long hair. It just needs to get back into 1985 with Poison and Brett Michaels. Oh, yeah. We have very different taste in men, you and I, Belinda. <laughs> yeah, we do. 